Scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 10. We'll read verses 13 through 17 together. These are the words of the Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Please pray with me. Our great God and King, we come before you today to be fed by you, to worship your name, that we may become more like you. Lord, as we hear these words today, as I stand here and herald them on your behalf, stir our hearts, God. May our heart be as your heart is for your glory to go out, especially among those that have not heard. So empower me now, Lord, to speak clearly and to speak truly what you would have your people to hear. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it is always a great joy to worship our Lord and Savior together with you, and happy Thanksgiving week. We have much to be thankful for. It's interesting how a lot of times our missions week falls on Thanksgiving week. Brother Joe Banks has reminded me that he was... Growing up, his church celebrated something called an in-gathering festival around fall time, and it was kind of their missions week. It was celebrating what the Lord has brought in, and not just locally, but also globally. So today is a day of celebration of what the Lord is doing among the nations. It's also a time that we purposefully take to refocus our attention on God's heart for his gospel going out and his kingdom being established where it has not yet taken root yet. And I do say yet taken root on purpose. We intentionally take this time because it's easy for Christ's global work to be out of sight and out of mind for us, surely because it is out of sight and out of mind beyond our national borders. The efforts being made to establish Christ's church among the unreached tribes of Africa is not something that we see in news headlines day to day at all. In fact, what we see on the news headlines is some of the main reasons why we fail to think about or maybe forget the necessity and importance of God's gospel mission being advanced around the world. I'm also guilty of this. When we look at the news, when we look at our news headlines, what we look at around our own nation, what we see is satanic lies being pushed as the new morality. And we have so much to fight for and against right here in front of us in our own culture. It truly is easy to lose sight and mind of what is going on spiritually outside of our own national borders. It is not often at the forefront of our thinking day to day that there's actually approximately 16,000 different people groups in this world. 
And using the term people group, I'm referring to the words that Christ used in his great commission of Matthew 28. When, right before he ascends into heaven, he gives specific examples for his church, for his disciples, to go and make disciples of all nations. And what I mean and what the words are that Jesus uses, the Greek words that he uses for all nations, is ta-ethne. Ta-ethne. And ta-ethne actually means ethnic groups. When we think of nations, we think of geopolitical boundaries. We think of the 196 nations that have borders that we see on a globe or on a map. But this is not what Christ was talking about. He was talking about distinct ethnic groups. For instance, in the country of Pakistan, in Pakistan alone, we think Pakistan is one country, but inside of Pakistan, there are actually over 400, 400 distinct people groups. These numbers are pretty staggering and hard to comprehend. So it's also difficult to keep in front of our thinking that out of these 16,000 people groups that I mentioned, there's approximately 7,000 people groups that have less than 2% evangelical Christians living among them. So we're talking about 3 billion, with a B, not million, 3 billion people on this world with less than 2% Christians around them. These people are lost, and they have very little to no access of the good news of Jesus Christ. I wish the news got better from there, but it actually even gets worse than that as far as people groups. Around 3,000 people groups in the world have zero Christians living among them. No gospel witness, no believers, no Bibles, no missionaries. And frankly, it's, it's, this is hard to even know what to do with numbers and statistics like these. They're so overwhelming when you hear things like this. It's uncomfortable and even despairing to think that right now there are literally billions and billions of people in the world that at this moment have no access to the only true God. There's no option for them to hear, even if somehow they wanted to hear. It's easy to hear these statistics and feel this heavy weight wash over us a heavy weight of extreme insufficiency for such a seemingly insurmountable task. Because these numbers are so incomprehensibly large, it really is easier just to focus on the necessities that are right in front of us. These are inconvenient truths because they do demand our attention. In light of God's word, Christ's great commission to his church to take his word to these people, we must consider what role we play individually and corporately. So today, my purpose before you, my prayer, my hope for us today in our time together in God's word is that the Spirit will grant us fresh eyes and stirred up hearts to see not only the urgency and the need of the gospel that I just talked about, but also that we would gain a newfound joy and confidence in the victory and the beauty there is in taking the great news of Jesus Christ to those who have not heard. So we're going to do this today by looking at four facets of the gospel message going out to the nations. So in order to see not only the urgency and the necessity 
of the gospel message going out, but also to see its sure victory and grandeur, we're going to consider four facets of the gospel message. And these four facets that we're going to see in Romans 10 today are the certainty of the gospel message, and then we will look at the vehicle of the gospel message in which it goes out. We're going to look at the beauty of the gospel message. And then finally, our fourth point today will be looking at the rejection of the gospel message. So let's go ahead and look back at our text this morning, if you will. We're going to start out by considering the certainty of the gospel message. The certainty of the gospel message. Look at verse 13 with me, please. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's often said, not too many things are certain in this life outside of death and taxes. But there are a few things that are certain. One great certainty that we possess is the certainty of victory in the gospel going out and being effective. We know this certainty because we experience it in our own changed lives. But we also know this certainty because of what God tells us in his word about the certainty of the gospel message. One of my favorite places to look in Scripture about this certainty is Revelation chapter 7. We get to see the end game. We are going into this battle with guaranteed victory. So if you would, turn to Revelation 7. These types of passages are passages that we need to reflect on, especially when we hear those statistics like we just heard. It seems like an insurmountable task. We need to look to these passages to fuel our thinking with the certainty of God's promises. Helps us not grow weary. Helps us to find hope in what God has called us to do and that he will do what he said. So Revelation 7, we're looking at the end game, starting in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. So the wording here is countless people. But who are these people? We need to ask ourselves that, so we'll find out if we keep reading. They are people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, every people group, what Christ talked about in his great commission. And what are they doing? These people are standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God. They're clothed in white robes. They have palm branches in their hands. And they are crying out with a loud voice of worship, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on his throne and to the Lamb. What a glorious and incredible scene. We are talking about the beautiful noise of countless people. If anybody's been to a professional sporting event at an arena like Arrowhead, the noise of 80,000 people is shocking to your senses. This is countless people, and they're not worshiping a game or players. They are worshiping the one true God, shouting in unison in praise and adoration without the hindrance of sin. Perfect worship before the Lord. And they're saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne into the Lamb. When you look at this scene, church, you know what? You are in this scene if you are a believer in Christ. 
you are in this crowd with your brothers and your sisters in Christ from all around the world. We will be in this scene someday, shouting in unison and in perfect praise in our Savior's present. In our Savior's presence, this is certainty. This is going to happen. God has said that this will happen. Let's read a couple more verses from this scene. Look at verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Church, we will fall on our faces in bliss and love and worship alongside the angels, alongside the apostles, alongside the patriarchs, and alongside all of our brothers and sisters from every people group. We will see him together as Christ is. We will have every tear wiped away, and there will be no sorrow, there will be no pain, and we will be at perfect rest together. These are great wonders to behold and to consider, and they are certain. This is going to happen because the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone out. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The all in verse 13 of Romans 10 is represented in this scene of heaven. All of those bowing at his throne have first, at some point, called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. It's important to note that this is a very specific name that is called on. It's not just some undefined higher being that someone puts their home hope in. This is not an agnostic kind of calling out that says, if you're out there, God, please save me. That's not what this is talking about. It is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, as is written in your scripture of the Bible that saves. In fact, verse 13 of our text is a quote from Joel 2.32. It's Yahweh. It's a crying out to the Jehovah God, Yahweh of the Bible. MacArthur talks about this in his commentary. He says, To call upon the name of the Lord was not a desperate cry to just any deity, whoever, whatever, wherever he or she might be, but it is a cry out to the one true God, the Creator Lord of all men and all things. As Paul states earlier in chapter 10, earlier in our chapter, which we're not going to go over, but he says, by the confession of Jesus as Lord and belief in one's heart that God raised him from the dead, this is how people are saved. He is the one true Lord on whom faithful Jews had always called in penitence, adoration, and worship. So to call upon the name of Jesus as Lord is to recognize and submit to his deity, his authority, his sovereignty, his power, his majesty, his word, and his grace. And everyone, Jew or Gentile, who does so will be saved. To be saved is to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
So it is certain, those that bow their knee to Jehovah God, those that call upon him as Savior and Lord through the finished work of Jesus Christ will be saved without a doubt. There's no caveats. There's no loopholes. And this is a wonderful and sure confidence that we have as we embrace this task of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. So since... The only way to salvation is through specifically calling out to the purpose and work of Jesus Christ. People must know about and who that person is before they can call out. And this is what brings us to the second facet of the gospel message we're going to consider this morning. So we've seen the certainty of what will happen when the gospel message goes out. But there's some serious logistical questions about this that need to be answered. And our text answers those questions. Look back at Romans chapter 10 with me, starting in verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So here we have four rhetorical questions that Paul lines out before us. And these questions are very purposefully composed. And really the answers to these questions are self-evident. And this is to point our minds to some obvious implications about just how the gospel, how does it achieve its end? What is the means of it working? So we do believe that the gospel will do its work, but God has designed necessary means by which the gospel goes out. And God has created a special vehicle for the gospel to travel to the nations in. We learned some specifics about this vehicle in answering these rhetorical questions. So let's consider the first two rhetorical questions. They are, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? So if we want to see individuals, lost individuals, call out to Christ as their only hope, if we want to see more nations around the world worship Christ... If we want more people added to that scene in Revelation that we saw, people must first believe. It's impossible for them to believe, though, if they've not heard. And remember, this believing is much more than just an intellectual assent to believe that Jesus was a real historical figure, or even to believe that Jesus is God. I may I remind you that in James chapter 2, even the demons who are diametrically opposed to the lordship of Christ. They believe that Jesus is God. No, this belief must be something more. And it is only something more because of what takes place when someone is hearing the gospel. Steve Lawson comments on this. He says, notice that verse 14 does not say they heard about Christ. Verse 14 says they heard Christ. So in the act of preaching, there is one seen, the preacher, and one who is not seen, Jesus Christ, who is speaking through his word. In preaching the gospel, you see a man, you hear a man, but it is Christ speaking through his word that convicts the heart and mind. Behind the man stands Jesus Christ, but in your heart you are hearing the authority of Jesus Christ himself. You are hearing more than a man. 
You must hear more than a human preacher to believe and call out. You must hear Christ himself calling out. To hear and believe, you must hear from Christ. Jesus talks about this in John 10. He says, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from the stranger, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So when Jesus calls people to salvation, they hear his voice through his word, compelling their hearts to come, be changed, follow me. So to believe, as our text says, one must hear Christ, but to hear Christ, there is a very specific and special vehicle by which that takes place. The third rhetorical question Paul asks tells us exactly what God's vehicle is for taking the gospel message to the lost. He asks, how are they to hear without someone preaching? It is the preaching of God's word that God uses to to speak to the souls of humans from every people group. Stop here and think about something. It's pretty amazing to think that the God who spoke the words of his mouth, he breathed out all of creation from the smallest subatomic particle that they're still discovering to the incomprehensibly vast stars. He, by the word of his mouth, spoke, and out of his word, plants, animals, oceans, other planets, galaxies were all formed, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Our minds can't even comprehend, begin to comprehend, the depths of the incredible power of God's words. Yet this is not how he chooses to use his power to change the hearts of men. You know, God could speak with an audible voice from heaven and shake the foundations of the earth and get people's attention, but this is not how he saves. He could write messages in the sky, put signs in the stars, but this is not how he saves. He could have the cherubim scare the living daylights out of people into believing, yet this is not God's method for saving his people. It is through God's words being spoken, yes, but it is through a delivery vehicle. And that delivery vehicle is called preaching. The unreached peoples of this world will not believe and will not hear without someone preaching. Lawson also states, preaching here is in a verb form. The Greek word is keruso. And this word means to lift up your voice, to pronounce, to proclaim, to get attention. It's like the old town criers. Hear ye! Hear ye, the words of the king, listen, the king has something to say. This is the idea of being a herald or a messenger that's sent out by a king with an important message, proclaiming laws, proclaiming edicts, proclaiming the Lord's will of that land. In fact, the Caesars of Rome had heralds in the palace. 
And these heralds would be dispatched and commissioned to go throughout the Roman Empire to pronounce Caesar's decrees. The messages given to the heralds to proclaim, these things were not up for negotiation by the herald. The heralds were never to withhold. They weren't to add opinions. There was no negotiation on giving their own opinions or insight or perspective on what Caesar might mean. Heralds, as a representative of Caesar, traveled from city to city, and then they would come back to the palace and give an account for what they had heralded. And they would tell of what was said. They'd talk about the people's reaction to what was said. Did the people comply? Was there pushback? Ultimately, the herald would be questioned and tested to see if he was faithful with what he had been entrusted to. If he was faithless and if he toned down the message, it could cost him his life. The Roman believers that Paul's writing to in our book would have very much understood this word Caruso because they lived in Rome. Rome's the very city where Caesar's heralds were dispatched from and where they returned to. So the Holy Spirit masterfully had Paul use this very descriptive term to describe the necessity the urgency, the purpose, the value, and the power of preaching. Our great creator, God, our king, the king of the universe, has spoken. He has a message for us, a message of a free offer of peace to his enemies, a peace that only he can ensure and secure. And it is the job of our king's heralds, or preachers to make sure that offer is heralded accurately. And what is miraculous about the job of the preacher is that the king speaks through the preacher. The power and call of Christ is heard through the words of the preacher. Luke 16.10, Christ tells us this. Listen to these words. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So the preacher is the mouthpiece of Christ. Yet it is only so if that preacher is speaking Christ's words. There is something distinctly special about God's message being preached. Are there other methods of transmitting God's word? Sure, there's tracts, there's radio programs, social media, recorded sermons. All of those things are still a transmission of the king's message through an individual, but there is still a special endowment of God's power that comes through the word being preached in person and laid on the conscience and heart of those that have not believed. Even those other means, such as tracts or electronic messages, they are still prepared by humans to carry out God's gospel message. It is always through man that God has decided to transmit his peace treaty to his enemies. Preaching is the vehicle for the gospel message. There is one more rhetorical question that Paul considers and asks us as we look at God's vehicle for the gospel message. Look in verse 15 with me, this last and fourth and final question that will inform us more about this vehicle of the gospel message. The question is, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? Folks, it is not God's design for a Christian to wake up one day by himself, and say, I'm headed off to Timbuktu to herald God's message. 
This is not God's design. This would be folly. As with any major, other major undertaking in life, there's planning, there's vetting, there's training to qualify those that would carry out this heralding work. And likewise, the preacher does not choose to go on his own. He is sent out. Lawson says this implies that there is a sending body that is commending, that is commissioning the preachers. This is a local church's elders who have affirmed, vetted, laid hands on, believes the preacher is called and then is sent out. The preacher is sound in doctrine. His life is pure before God. The church is the sending agents. And standing behind the elders of the church is the head of the church itself, the Lord Jesus Christ who commissions them. Let me prove this to you. You don't have to turn there, but it's something to consider. You can write down out of Acts 13 at the beginning of the chapter. We see the very first account of the very first missionaries being sent out. Names familiar to you, Paul and Barnabas. It says Saul in this chapter, but they're also referring to him as Paul. So Paul is being sent out. Surely, though, Paul, who was called on the Damascus road to be an apostle by Jesus Christ, surely Paul, on his own, should have the ability to decide when and where he wants to be sent out. He shouldn't have had to answer to anyone or be sent by anyone. But that's not what we see. Listen to this out of Acts 13. It says, while they, the church at Antioch, the church at Antioch is the one that's going to send them out, while they were gathered together worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, who was also called Paul, for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So it is God through his church that qualifies and sends out missionaries to the unreached. So, church, this is a very important application that we can draw from the principle of this last rhetorical question. It is not God's design for missionaries to be disconnected lone rangers for the gospel. Truly, not all of us are going to be sent, not all of us are meant to be sent, but all of us have a part to play in sending out our brothers and sisters. We must take part in sending. If we don't send, unreached people will not believe a message they have not heard because there's not been a preacher to tell them of God's free offer of the gospel. We must not only think of this as a mandate, though. This is an incredible privilege. It changes not just the course of individuals' lives, but it changes the course of entire villages, people groups, and nations. And we get to be a part of that. We have power behind us when we do this. We have Christ's power behind us. Remember Christ's words from Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and where? And to the ends of the earth. There's no dark corner there's no violent tribe, there's no desert, no extreme poverty, no hostile government, and no forsaken place that we can go or send people out where Christ will not be with his church in power as we herald his truth. There's no greater message to take. There's no greater purpose. And when this gospel message is taken to those who have not heard, there is no news that is more beautiful to these people. Look at the end of verse 15. 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And here we see the beauty of the gospel message. The beauty of the gospel message. It is interesting that Paul asks these four rhetorical questions about the vehicle of the gospel, and then immediately he launches into this paraphrased quote from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. His progression of thought, this progression of thought moving us here, has the anticipation of assured victory. If we send preachers to preach the gospel, the news will be embraced as beautiful as the greatest news that can be brought. And this quote from Isaiah 52 that Paul is using to talk about the beauty of the gospel message going out, this quote from Isaiah 52 is watchtower language. The walls of cities had watchtowers on them, and they would watch for certain things. I want to bring out the significance of this quote by going ahead and reading to you Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 10. You don't have to turn there, but listen to these words. This is what Paul is quoting. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good, good news. What is this good news? The good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So we have this scene from long ago of watchmen looking out. They're looking out for news of what has taken place. Many of you may be familiar with the legend of Pheidippides and the Battle of Marathon. This battle took place in 490 BC, and it was the first attempt of King Darius I to conquer, King Darius of Persia to conquer Greece. And the Greeks' decisive victory over Persia happened at Sparta, and Sparta was approximately 26 miles from Greece's capital, Athens. And as the legend goes, Pheidippides is sent as a messenger to rush this wonderful news to Athens. He pushes him so hard in this 26 plus mile run that when he arrives, he is only able to utter the words, Hail, we are the winners, before he dies of exhaustion. And this is just an example of how important and beautiful it was to see a messenger from a watchtower coming with important news in that day. It was the only way to communicate. The people of Athens, I'm sure, were wondering how long until the Persian army reaches us. And Pheidippides raced to alleviate them of their fear and worry with wonderful news. And that is one purpose of the watchmen on the watchtowers. Not only to watch out for enemies, but to also look for the messengers that are bringing important news. It's been said <clears throat> that the nature of the news from... <clears throat> excuse me. 
It's been said that the nature of the news from a messenger could often be determined by looking at how they were using their feet as they brought the news. If it was good news, they would be fast. They'd be light on their feet because they'd be excited to share. What if there was defeat? It would show in the very gate of the messenger with their feet seeming to be as heavy as their heart as they had sorrowful news to bring. In the passage that Paul quotes from Isaiah 52, we have a scene of rejoicing that breaks out when the beautiful feet of the messenger has brought what kind of news? News of peace with the God of heaven. And this peace was not just peace for the people of Jerusalem, but it is news of God's holy arm, his strength, his power being demonstrated and salvation reaching all the nations to the ends of the earth. And this news is so wonderful, it is said that the messenger's feet are beautiful because it is the feet that carry the herald and his wonderful news. Ephesians 6 uses some of this same imagery when talking about the armor of God that we must wear as believers to fight against the evil of this world. If you remember what it says about the feet, we're commanded, prepare your feet with the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Church, we must make ourselves ready to prepare our feet with this gospel message, to advance it to the ends of the earth, because you know what? There is no plan B for this. This is God's message, and it is beautiful because people from every ethnic group will embrace it and call upon Christ. Yet there is some unfortunate news that we must consider from our passage Some would see what I'm about to tell you, some would see this as a discouraging failure. But it is the news that we must understand if we are able to have endurance in the task. Please look at your text from Romans 10 at verse 16. The text reads, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord... Who has believed what he has heard from us? So here we see our fourth and final facet of the gospel message this morning, and that is the rejection of the gospel message. The rejection of the gospel message. Although there is certain victory and power in the message preached and beautiful results among the peoples of the earth, most people, most people will reject this message. It seems defeatist in some ways to focus on this fact, but I believe, I really believe it is a grace to us, church, for us to see and understand that even though we are promised great victory, there will still be many difficulties, yet God will still be through us, be with us, and working through the difficulties to weave his purposes. Matthew 13, Christ tells one of his parables of the kingdom that is often referred to as the parables of the soils. And this parable gives us an example of what to expect as the gospel message goes out, similarly as verse 16 of Romans chapter 10 does. The parable goes like this. A farmer goes out to sow seed. Back then, farming was much more primitive. A farmer would go out and broadcast his seed. He had a satchel and he'd throw the seed out to sow it. Some of the seed the farmer throws out lands along the path that he's on, and the birds came and ate up the seed immediately. 
Some of the seed fell on rocky soil. That seed immediately sprang up. Just as soon as it sprang up, it withered and died from the sun because it had no root system. Other seed fell among thorny plants, and the thorns grew up and choked out that seed. Another seed fell on soil that was rich and prepared, and that seed produced a bumper crop. Some of the plants that were sown in that good soil produced a hundredfold and sixtyfold and some thirtyfold. Now, even the disciples, when they heard this parable, they had no clue what Jesus was talking about, so Jesus explained it to them. Jesus explained to his disciples the symbolism of each of these elements within this parable. So the seed that the farmer is sowing is this gospel message, the news of the kingdom, the gospel message going out. And when anyone hears this message but doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches what has been sown in that individual's heart, like the birds eating up the seed along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the person who hears the word, and they immediately get excited and receive it with joy, but there's no root in themselves. So they only endure for a little while, and when difficulties come, tribulations or persecutions on account of the word, immediately that person falls away and leaves Christ's truth. What was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world... The deceitfulness of riches, it chokes out the truth, and the seed proves unfruitful. And then finally, as for the seed that was sown on good soil, this is him who hears the word, understands it, and it takes root, and it bears fruit in their lives. So we see four different types of individuals in this parable. We get to see their reaction to the gospel message being sown in their hearts. Consider the odds Christ demonstrates in this parable. Three out of four ultimately reject the gospel, even though some seem like they embrace it at the beginning. Now, this is not an exact prediction of the belief-rejection ratio we will always encounter, but when we consider the results of the various ministries of our heroes of faith, these odds are pretty consistent. Majority do not believe. Think about Elijah the prophet one point he thought he was the only believer and so he cries out to God and God assures him that yeah there's still 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to false gods Elijah. Jeremiah the prophet the weeping prophet who was rejected and eventually killed for his message the disciples how much difficulty and persecution they went through but I really believe our ultimate example of this expectation of rejection is seen in our example from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We see that he came to his own, his own knew him not, and they rejected him to the point of death. Interestingly enough, the quotation that Paul uses here in verse 16 brings our attention to this rejection of the gospel message in the verse, verse of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53.1 is what Paul is quoting here. For those of you who do not know what the passage of Isaiah 53 is, it is the most descriptive prophetic message of the suffering of the Messiah in the Old Testament. So here's the paradigm. The way of the cross is the pattern throughout redemptive history. Before victory, there is suffering and there is difficulty. Christ's death surely seemed like defeat, 
until he rose three days later, conquering sin and death, and then he ascended to heaven and is now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. The majority of Christ's disciples faced a martyr's death, but their faithfulness to the gospel message won certain victory. This is demonstrably true because you're sitting here listening to these words today. And this is because it has been passed down from the apostles to us in this very room. So even though there is rejection in proclaiming Christ's gospel message, there will always be some outcome of certain victory and beauty, even though we may not be able to see it or perceive it at times. Pastor Brent read out of Isaiah 55 this morning. One of the precious promises that is in Isaiah 55 is this. God promises, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I sent it. And I'm so thankful that the last verse of our passage this morning does not end on the down note of expected rejection, but it does remind us of God's certain means and outcome. Look at verse 17 as we are wrapping things up. Verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ, and hearing through the word of Christ. And folks, these are sure and steady principles. These are promises that we can order our lives after, that we can order our ministries after. Church, we must embrace the facts of the gospel message and let them stir us up and drive us to fight for Christ's kingdom to be advanced among all the peoples of this world. So I hope today that your heart has been moved with a fresh reality of the certainty of the gospel message through the vehicle of preaching the gospel message and the beauty that comes from the gospel message Even though there will be those that reject the gospel message, we will experience eventual eternal victory. In closing today, I want to shift gears just a little bit down to a more personal level, thinking about where your own heart is at individually. I want to spend a few moments revisiting the parable of the soils. I'm going to briefly go through this parable once again. But I want each of you in this room to quietly evaluate in your heart and mind and ask yourself, What type of soil am I? I've heard gospel seed today. I've heard gospel seed in the past. What has it done in my own heart? When you hear the truth of God's word and his gospel, are you like the soil along the path? Do you immediately forget what has been told to you? Do you just not care? Are you indifferent to what your creator has said? Do you love your sin? Do your plans matter to you more than God's ways? If this is you, you are still an enemy of God. You cannot make the terms of peace with him. Only he can do that, and he has done that through Jesus Christ and his finished work. So call on him. Call to him, sinner, and he will save you. Maybe you're like the rocky soil. You hear a good sermon, and you immediately enjoy it and say, Yeah, that's good. That's true. I like that. But you abandon truth when times get difficult. Or maybe you have been at work and thought following Christ is too hard. It's way too difficult to go against the crowd. If you live a life, if you live a pattern life that has abandoned Christ's truth to be at peace with men and look for their approval, you very well may be this type of soil. And you too must repent and run to Christ because Christ is worth it. 
For only in him there is lasting peace, real approval, and life. Or maybe you're like the thorny soil. The Bible is something you say you believe, but what you really love is the things of this world, riches, pleasure, earthly treasure, similar to the soil along the path. Your focus in life is more about what you can get material, so much so that you do not think about ordering your life according to God's purposes. If this is you, you too need to repent, run to Christ, call upon him to be your master and savior. And then finally, maybe you're like the good soil. All glory be to God. He has planted his gospel message in your heart, and you are living for his ways, and you're living a life of worship to him. If this describes you, let me encourage you, keep looking to Christ. Don't ever stop. Don't grow weary in well-doing. For in due season you will reap if you do not give up. Christ's rewards are unfathomable and lavish upon those who serve him faithfully. Please pray with me. Our great God and our King. The task is too great for us but it is not too great for you. Lord, what wonders that you use us to be your heralds, your ambassadors, to proclaim your truth, and to see everlasting souls' trajectories change course from hell to heaven, from death to life, from hellish living to living in a life that is purposed after the best things, the most wonderful things, the most glorious things. Lord, may we be stirred up as a church to be faithful to seeing your word go out to the nations. May we be faithful to send those out that are going out well. Lord, if there's those that you are compelling to go out in this room today, I pray that you would bless them in that endeavor and that they would submit themselves to your, your ways of doing it. Lord, I pray for stamina. I pray for enjoyment of this gospel war. Lord, I pray that those that are already in the fight, that you would strengthen their hearts and minds, that they would not grow weary in well-doing. But I pray for those in this room that may be warring against you, that have not bowed their knee to you as Lord, that you would convict their hearts and minds and that you would change their heart of stone into a heart of clay that can be molded by you today. Lord, your word is powerful to do these things. So please, we ask by the power of your word and your spirit that these things would come to pass. We lift these things up in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.